welcome to Accelerate Your Wealth, a podcast by Rebecca Robertson, founder and director of Evolution Financial Planning. This series, we're focusing on female financial independence, looking towards a stronger financial future. Be sure to let us know your thoughts on the show, and please do connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram, or head over to www.rebeccarobertson.co.uk. So in today's show, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Hannah Roberts, and we're going to be talking about the wealth trap for academics. And this is going to be a super interesting conversation for anybody who is working in an academic role, career, and really wanting to sort of think about what shifts and changes they could make. So Hannah is a career coach and professional skills trainer with clients spanning six continents and a top 10 UK podcast, Women in STEM Career and Confidence. During her extensive academic and industrial career, she took research from concept to startup and since 2018 has been qualified and regulated coach, trained in talent dynamics profiling, specialising in career planning, online networking and social media skills, embedding commercialisation into research design. Hannah has a particular passion for diversity and inclusion and, of course, um, women's leadership development. Let's get chatting to Hannah. Welcome, Hannah. Thanks for joining us today. I'm really excited to be with you because it's always great to have a chat with with Becca. Oh, that's (laughs) lovely for you to say that. There's no pressure, right? (laughs) No No, pressure. pressure. Only recording it. (laughs) Only only recording. And do you know I'm at 10,000 downloads as of like a week ago? Or like, yeah. That's exciting. Really exciting. It's not like 100,000 downloads, but it's still, it's still, I'm really, I'm really happy with that. And so thank you for listening, people that are, downloading and recommending us I really appreciate it um so today's conversation I, I don't I will class myself as, as an academic because I didn't go to university um I didn't even do a levels and I went to college and I started working in a bank at 19 and so my career yes is you would class financial services as, as an academic vocation maybe but I wouldn't class myself as an academic um at school, I, I would actually think I was probably quite thick and not that clever, but I, I obviously am. Seeing this, Rebecca, I know, but I think it's—I I was, I was, I was classed as not very clever. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And and so when I look at academics, I, and you know, I, I have some amazing clients that are just incredible. You know, like I'm talking scientists that are set like curing cancer, kind of incredible people. And I just think, wow, how how clever are they <laughs> Com- compared to me? And I, I, we do that, don't we? But then I look at some of those women and they don't see themselves like that. But they're incredible, but they don't see themselves like that. They look at me, for example, and go, oh, my God, she must have all her stuff together and look at what she's doing and how incredible. And it's just it's so interesting how we put these standards and these labels on, on each other and compare. And when why, why, why do we do that Hannah? Why do we do that? We all do that don't we? Comparisonitis it's like rocket fuel for the inner yeah. critic so it's really our inner critic that's comparing ourselves unfavorably to other people no matter how well you're doing in your own capacity we will always find a way if we have a strong inner critic to say we are worse than that other person in this particular characteristic and I think when it comes to that inner critical voice, it's really important to go on a com- comparisonitis diet. <laughs> how do you do that? How, how, yeah, where do you start with that? 
I cut out sugar recently, so I know how to do that, just stop eating sugar. But um, which was actually surprisingly not that difficult. I thought it'd be harder than what it was. But how do you stop comparing and judging yourself? Because it's such an inner voice, right? It is, but it's also one of many voices, if you think about it, that we hear in our heads. So I use a process in my coaching called Voice Dialogue that talks about these different voices that we hear, not in a weird kind of pathological way. Yes, there are people out there who do have a pathology, which is one day they wake up and they're a chicken. The next day they wake up and they're like a 60 year old man. And the next day they wake up, but they don't know they've been the chicken. They don't know they've been. Right. Whereas fun. Not really. (laughs) No. Whereas for you and me and the vast majority of people out there, we do hear all of these different voices. One is that really inner critical comparisonitis voice, but there are other ones. So you might have a voice that says, I don't know, go for a walk at lunchtime, really get some fresh air. That'd be really good for you. And then another voice that says, have you seen how many emails you've got in your inbox with all these like unread things? You need to sit at your desk and eat your food while you get through all of those emails. Mm. And depending upon which voice is strongest depends on the actions that you take right so if you then break a rule of one of those particular voices like say you've got a strong perfectionist yeah then you do something and you're criticized by somebody else and you've broken that rule you've become a substandard in some way and that's when the inner critic hammers you right when you've got something wrong when you've broken a rule of one of these other selves as we call them so how do you start to shut them up? <laughs> you shut them up by actually listening to them. Right. So what we normally do is go, ah, I'm really being hammered by my inner critic. I'm going to pretend, la, 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 I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to listen. I'm going to like shut that down. Yeah. What it does is it actually pipes up even louder and it gets okay. even stronger. So actually just acknowledging it. Oh, thank you so much for telling me that I'm, um never gonna amount to anything whatever it's saying to you thanks so much for that thanks like not not, not in a sarcastic way right not in a thanks. not in a sarcastic way no thank you so much for pointing out that I'm really wrinkly or whatever it's got to say about whatever um you've got yellow teeth or this is this is what mine says at the moment um and you just say thank you so much I have heard you I reassure it that you have and that you are going to do something about it And the point is that you can come back to a position of choice, like being the CEO of your own boardroom. And there's a sea of all these different voices that you can take opinions from and remember their opinions because they have a specific thing that they're trying to do for you. Yeah. Come back to a position of choice. What do I choose to do? Do I choose to follow um, the thought of comparisonitis and I'm not good enough? We know where that leads pretty bad day ahead. Or do I choose a different perspective? but until we've got that separation of being able to see what it what's going on we don't have a choice we're just being run by these voices i'm eating my food and i'm doing my emails i didn't have a choice but we always do so i I imagine for academics is you know i'm assuming here just from like you know friends and watching telly and sort of seeing different scenarios sort of form in, in my head but i imagine that a lot of highly academic women male or female actually um are massive perfectionists because they've probably got very high standards that 
they either their family has set down for them or they feel that they need to be top of the class when they was at school and they want to get to the best university and they want the best um you know professor and they want you know so they're they're, they're very driven for that from that perfectionism getting that right am I assuming correctly there yeah, I would say you're really correct with high perfectionists, but also big pushers and big pleasers as well for academics. And there's some research recently that came out, and I suppose all of this boils down to, we could just call it imposter syndrome, mm. you know, and that's kind of the blanket term for a, a whole collection of thoughts, beliefs, limiting emotions that are holding us smaller than we would like to be or stuck in some way. And yeah. in academia in particular, 95% of women in academia suffer from frequent, moderate, or intense levels of imposter syndrome. So it's yeah. like you have collected really top perfectionists, mm. really first rate pushers and pleasers and put them all together so that their inner critics can compare them at this level up here. <laughs> that sounds so stressful. It's a very highly competitive environment that you don't realise that's happening because of all the kind of hierarchical structures in academia until you really observe it from the outside and you go, oh, that's what was happening. Okay, and that's what happened to you, right? Because you had a career, you know, tell people about what you did before your business. Yeah, so um, in my past life, not so past life, because I think once you're a scientist, you're always a scientist. So um, I was a scientist. I had a degree. Well, I, I shouldn't say I had. I have a degree, master's, PhD, and postdoc in chemistry. I then spent eight years managing large multi-million pound projects between academia and industry and commercializing that research. And I started a spin-out company with three other female academics and was managing director of that company for two years. And then um, I had three children during that time too. So it's on my third mat leave when I had an epiphany and decided to retrain to be a coach and a professional skills trainer at that point. So that was um, led by a whole series of events really, but the upshot was that um, in the end, it wasn't until my dad had a really big heart attack when Elsie was um, eight weeks old. And that's what really left me question, like asking some big questions. So is this really what I, how I can make the biggest impact in the world? So in the work I was doing, I could tangibly see, yeah, we're affecting millions of people over the world with some kits that have been produced by this company and blah, blah, blah. But I really couldn't feel that difference. I couldn't see it with my own eyes. Mm. So I felt quite detached from that purpose and making Brilliant. a difference. And so what did, what did you want to do then? What difference did you want to make? a good question <laughs> I think it comes down as, as simply um like at the simplest term as helping other people yeah that's the difference I want to make and it was the difference I wanted to make when I was eight years old when I said I wanted to be a doctor mm. I didn't really know back then I was just collecting the how my body works books you know <laughs> all uh, scientists you will speak to will say yes <laughs> They all had the book series and the little skeleton. Um, back then it was just, I'm really interested in how my body works, how other people work as well. And I want to help other people. And the only way I could articulate that was I want to be a doctor because that's the only kind of thing I could see where you could do mm. that. Um, and I so how do you do that now? How do I help other people now? 
I do it through coaching and training. So I am really hugely passionate about using that as a technique to help other people because I think looking forwards of just kind of taking the next step that felt like the next right step for me. But looking back, it kind of all makes sense now that I would be helping people through coaching and training. One, because it's aligned to my natural talent. So I feel like I'm good at my job and I enjoy it. It's joyful. But two, I've seen this leaky pipeline of women leaving academia or not managing to get to the position they want to or leaving and feeling like a failure. And I really wanted to do something to make a difference on that pipeline so that we don't have 43% of women coming in in chemistry and only 9% becoming professors. Wow, that's massive. And so why do you think, why do you think that is? Well, for me, and I can speak from personal experience, the point which is, I guess, the most precarious point of your career is going from a PhD to a postdoc. Right. Because you are, during that time, you're underneath someone else's supervision, so you're not independent, but you're trying to establish your independent line of inquiry so that you can write your own independent fellowship and become independent in your own right. But it also coincides with the fact that those contracts are usually short-term contracts. So I started a postdoc on a 12-month contract and I got pregnant. So this is the next part. I got pregnant two weeks into that contract. Right. So you're on a short-term contract. There's all this insecurity of these contracts and it coalesces with a time in your life should you choose to have a family mm. when you're, your ovaries are screaming at you. Right. <laughs> it's now or never. Um, and it's like this, this soup and this pot of things that are not really helpful. And yeah, we also have, you know, a massive hierarchical structure and not the support in place to help um, women or those from underrepresented groups to really thrive in that environment. Right. So from a wealth perspective, what's the trap for academics when it comes to money and wealth? Taking into account what you've just described there, which is the case for a lot of women in careers when we choose to have children, if we choose to have children, that can actually have a, well, it does, whether people like it or not, and they don't really want to hear it or not, it does have an impact on your career. Unless you have an amazing boss, an amazing company that will allow you to go back and do the job that you were doing before without question, and it's well paid enough for you to be able to justify the, like the cost of having a nanny potentially, because who wants to send a six-month-old eight month old um, into a nursery like full time the amount of hours that you have to do to work in that full-time environment may be slightly easier now with some being able to work from home but imagine from an academic perspective it, you know the women that you're talking about could be actually having to go into not just an office but actually go into a lab environment so you can't do that from home um, and so what other elements are women who are academics coming up against and what are those traps yeah, yeah, really great question. And just to um, just to reiterate that point, yeah, I was pregnant and having to be in the lab, which right. is huge. And when I returned, I didn't actually go back in the lab because I'd kind of given up on my academic career during during mat leave. And the rhetoric that you get from people who are in academia who are acting as the role models and the mentors are, oh well, I returned back to work two weeks after giving birth. I just got a nanny. So what one, one person said to me, oh, I, I wrote um, my fellowship in the first 12 weeks after giving birth. They don't do much for the first 12 weeks. 
make maternity leave look like it never happened on your CV. This is what yeah. I was told. Yeah. Um, I can totally see that and in corporate obviously completely different industry and like I said I won't cast myself as an academic but it's it's that intense environment where from a corporate perspective you've almost got to yeah like it's no big deal everyone has babies every day what's what's the problem well not everyone has a perfect baby that sleeps all night or sleeps all the time some people are struggling to breastfeed and there's intense hormones that are just raging through your body um and some don't have great bosses who won't then support if there is an issue then you've got to hide it all um so I can totally can see that just from I think more of a corporate perspective I guess yeah so the upshot was because I was told you really should be doing something with your mat leave that's what I did I just continued to work through my mat leave doing all the things that I could do at home I remember having given birth and I'd had a like a hemorrhage with Oscar. So I'd lost like a litre of blood. My under my eyes were all like yellow and green. I've got this awful picture that my dad used to have as his screenshot. And I was like, why are you using that as a screenshot? I look like I'm actually deaf. And five days after that, I was back on my computer, emailing project partners across Europe to get their reports, to get the budgets. And I just remember like having Oscar sat there in the bouncy chair and just being overrun by this fear that if I didn't do this, they would just bring, there's like a hundred people lined up waiting to take my place. So I had a lot of um, fear around, around that. And I did, I worked through both maternity leaves and it got to the point where I thought, this isn't working. This isn't for me. Where does that push come from? Does that push come back to the the environment or does it come back to the perfect perfectionist wanting to do well because um I, I really feel that there's such an industri- injustice in in that and that there's an awful lot of masculine pushing going on um and and that's not good for the company that's not good as a team it might solve that day's problem but surely that can't happen these days is, is that still happening do you think yeah do you just need to look at the trail of burnout that's happening around academia and all of those people leaving academia speak to anybody and they will talk about getting into work at 9am leaving at 10pm working weekends I had a client who hadn't had a weekend off in four years wow yeah yeah this is this is the culture because it's so competitive and it's a mixture of yes it is competitiveness arising from the our own insecurities but also the structure is set up to spit yeah. people out because there aren't enough positions for everybody. So by default, you are funneling, but you're, un- you're funneling in an unequal way. So let's just say this. If you're, you're working longer hours, you're, not, you're working maternity leaves, which is just crazy because you're not meant to be working at all. There's a pressure to do so. You're probably having to pretend that you're not ill. And we're talking about people that scientifically would understand burnout better than anybody else like any of my friends for example who aren't scientists etc they would understand the impact of that on the body better than anybody and you actually walk out of university with more debt um, and less of financial security because you've got short-term contracts and with no real light at the end of the tunnel is, is is that the wealth trap is that what we're talking about here So the wealth trap for me is the fact that if you go through an academic pathway, the kind of, I call it the career conveyor belt, where you just kind of keep taking the next step that kind of presents itself to you in academia. 
I didn't do that. I left after my degree, did a few different jobs, like a graduate development scheme in industry and a few things. I went, oh, still don't know what I want to do. Came back to do my PhD. But even if you go on that pathway just straight through, you're going to be somewhere between the age of 26 to 28 before you even start to get paid, where you get a pension component of that. So yes, you get a bursary for a PhD usually, but it's enough to live off. It's not something you're going to save from. We're talking like £1,200 a month or something like that. Wow. Okay. I don't know what they are now, but it's it's like, it's not a, a lot. Um, so you're starting at the age of 28 with between 27 to £30,000 starting salary as a postdoc. And you've not got a pension at all yet. And you're about to go into your 30s. And for me, I then had three children. <laughs> so I've got three mat leaves in between. I reduced my hours slightly, went to 70%, but I was still working more than full-time hours, of course. Um, so yeah, Rebecca, what impact would that have on oh your pension? God. I mean, huge. I mean, I mean, it's, where do you start? Because you know, I was then thinking, okay, do I clear the debts that I've got? Um, I've thought about buying a house yet you know you're almost sort of 10 years behind and you actually haven't got the salary for it um and I think unless you became a doctor and you was able to do private work and you could escalate your salary you know quickly by doing private work and NHS work um but scientists that are working in a lab as employed by a I don't know I don't even know what you'd call them a pharmaceutical company or a laboratory of some description um I don't envisage that they pay an awful lot like you've just described so it would depend on how quickly you could really turn that around and and really the the, the 10 years that you've lost or the eight years that you've lost how you could make that up substantially in a very short period of time because otherwise you could get to late 30s and you'd put very minimal into your pension. You've maybe bought a small property, um, but you're not at a point where you could do very much else. And you're nearly you're nearly forty years old, yeah. and you know that's quite quite a shock to the system. So you have to ask the question: Is it worth it? Is is it is it worth it? If you if you yeah, get, you don't enjoy it, and but it, it ticks your boxes in terms of the academic side of things, and it challenges you. Yeah, is it is it worth it? If it, it depends on, I guess it's going to come down to the type of company you work for and the type of job you can get. So that, I imagine there's a lot of com, um, very competitive to get those good jobs in good locations with good salaries. It's highly competitive. I mean, I plugged some numbers into a pension calculator when I was um, start. Well, I didn't even start to think about pension until really I was thinking about leaving academia. That's when I went. <gasps> shock horror look at this and I looked at you know you just get a small increment each year on your salary um, and I looked age 68 estimated pension income 14 and a half thousand pounds per year that's what I would have had had I just mm-hmm. continued to unconsciously just let the pension flow in from what I was given from the university yeah now just to pick up that point most people go into academia and it's it's not about the money right I think that is clear (laughs) yeah I'd agree with that for the money it's all about the curiosity it's about making a difference making an impact in some way 
or helping other people, we're really driven by that creativity, curiosity, making a difference. And a lot of people in academia are not thinking about the money. And it's only really when you need the money where you go, oh, I haven't thought about it. It's even part of career planning in any way, shape. Yeah, yeah I can see that. And I, and I also see a lot of women um, from all walks of life, whether academic or not, um, that they're in their 50s and they've paid into a pension all their life. And they've, you know, because they necessarily haven't been earning, I'm talking six figure salaries, unfortunately, the level that that then that percentage so you think oh I'm ticking the box I'm paying into a pension it's fine but the level that like you've just described is just not sufficient enough to cover what you need now when you run a business if you're lucky enough to have a kind of business that has an uncapped income salary dividend profits you can go okay well actually I can chuck 40 grand in for this tax year and um, that will make up some people's 10 years of contributions and yeah. I can do that in one year. Um, so I guess, what do you find that they have like a side hustle? I, like, I don't want to use the word hustle because I don't think academics would use that terminology. And I'm not a massive fan of the word side hustle because it just makes it sound all very pushy and very sousy. And it, you know, how that, how's that making an impact on the world? But do you think there's another option? Can they have one foot in and one foot out? Can their, their, their skill set be transferred to earn money another way or not? Well, of course, your skill set is hugely transferable when it comes to academia and all of the skills that you acquire. The issue is if you're working really long hours, there is no more time or energy for mm. side projects and side hustles. That's if you're in the mix, you might be having, you know, think, think about me as a postdoc returning after mat leave. Um, you're, you've got a kid that's up at 5.30 a.m. that you no way them everywhere. You turn up for work, you've got to be really like focused because now you actually have to leave on time to pick up the kid. Yeah. Um, and then in the evening, it's all the other stuff that goes on top. Yeah. So it's pretty much zero in terms of time and energy that you could probably give to anything else. And so do you think that more women are leaving academic roles now and maybe relying more on their partners um, and maybe then still not putting into pensions or are most of them changing jobs or getting a different boss or are they leaving and doing something completely different what's the sort of trend or is it all of the above so I tend to work with women at that kind of the hot pot mess of what's going on where you really start to ask yourself the question is academia worth it for me and probably the financial element hasn't even played a, a piece of this decision making at this particular moment in time but can I even make it as an academic do I even want to continue to do this or if I'm going to leave what is it that I'm going to do because most of the rhetoric we get in academia is you move into industry just industry <laughs> that's the kind of like it's either academia or industry and my kind of philosophy is actually, well, where is it that you want to make the biggest difference in the world? What's the vision you have for the world? What's, you know, what's the skill set that you have? And where is it that you're going to feel most purposeful? Mm. Because for me, it ended up being coaching and training for somebody else. It could be, could be a whole heap of other things. It could be making candles. I don't know. Yeah. But 
I want people to be able to have all the options on the table, not just this is how you move on from academia. You make this transition into industry and you'll, you will be happy. <laughs> no, you never know, right? And sometimes you care for what you wish for. You might get there and actually it's not what, quite what you thought. But I think that's part of learning and life, though, it's figuring that sort of stuff out. And all the time we put it off and we don't make some of these decisions and unfortunately we're not really helping ourselves and that comes very much when it comes to the financial side of things they probably like you said they probably haven't thought about the financial impact that that's having the, the, where they are and what the, their career choice is um, and I'm sure if they actually sort of opened up that that sort of can of worms it might make a different decision for them and I do find that there are a lot of um, there are a lot more women, I think, in their early 30s now who are making much better financial decisions than what even I did 10 or so years ago um, at that when I was at that stage of life. And I'm seeing more, them getting younger and younger now when, when it comes to um, you know, coming out of university and going, OK, well, what, what, have I got a pension? And they're asking the right questions to their employers and they're um, sort of demanding a bit more and having higher expectations. And I, th I think that's healthy that we understand that, you know, it, it, you can't always have your, your pound of flesh and there's not something in return. But I think if you are particularly like, you know, perfectionist or whatever, you maybe don't want to ask that question. You might not want to ask your boss for the pay rise. You might not want to feel that, you know, you want to push any buttons just in case you don't get a renewal on the contract or whatever. Um, it must be a really difficult place to be um, to be able to move forward and make some decisions. So what would be your, if you had someone coming to you that was in that, like, where do I start? Like, I could ask for a pay rise, but what do I do? How do I do that? I could look at maybe another career step, but I'm not sure where I want to, how, how do I start going into industry? What would, what would they still need to think about? So I have kind of six different stages to purposeful career design strategy. I would take it back even, even further than making any decisions on the career because I want people to make conscious choices. Mm. It comes back to actually time and energy to work on your career, not just in it. Because at the moment, we've got people head down, produce, 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 prove, push, show my worth, therefore I will be rewarded. That often doesn't happen. It's usually the person that comes up behind you, articulates where it is they're going and what they want, and off they go, leaping, leaping ahead. So the first step really is to find the time to work on your career, not just in it. And right. that comes- Good advice. Yeah, balancing multiple different competing areas of your life. So not letting go of health, relationships, wealth, personal development, because obviously we need to work on our career and also the career as well. So yeah. I have a time and energy sequence app that I help people to manage that in an accountable way. Amazing. Any one top tip from the, what you'd say for time management then it, in that particular point, any tip to share? Yeah, so it is about setting intentions each week in each of those different pillars of your life. Mm. And actually booking it in, blocking the time so that it actually becomes a reality. Otherwise, we just, oh, work so busy. I'm just going to let go of all the exercise until, until I've got this report in. And then it's the next thing. And then it's the next thing. It's never ending. Yeah, so I would say plan all the other pillars first of your life before any career thing goes in your calendar. Amazing. Yeah, get it. That's a really good tip. And so if people want to come and connect with you, Hannah. Um, you obviously have your podcast, which is Women in STEM Career and Confidence. So they can go and check out. And if they want to hear more about what we've been talking about today, then 
go and check that out and we will um, share the link um, to your website and your Twitter and your, um, your Instagram and everything um, so you, they can come and come and find you quite easily. Thank you so much for sharing your experience today and um, I think what you're doing is amazing. I think it's a, a really important way for you to give back and enjoy what you're doing so it's great credit to you that you've gone from where you are to where you, where you were to where you are now um, and you know you're sharing your knowledge as you go so yeah brilliant thank you so much for joining us today i hope those that are listening have enjoyed it any lasting tips or um comments before we go hannah my lasting comment is work with rebecca because she sorted out my finances um given the story that you've just heard unfold i feel much more confident that um i will have a pension in the future that is um more than what i could have imagined Plus, I have created a legacy for my children as well that's really important. So if you are not thought about it, now is, now is the best time. Let's not wait any longer. No, thank you. That's really kind of you. And, um, you know, you're, you're one of my, uh, I've got lots of so many lovely clients, but um, you have some clients who sort of, it's like friendship and client and you end up, you know, I've got so many that I, I, I get on so lovely with, which is, makes my job so much easier as well. So Thank you for that. It's really kind of you. Um, okay, let's say goodbye then. Lovely. Thanks for joining us, those that are listening. And go and subscribe and check out any of our other podcasts if you want to listen any more about wealth and enjoying, enjoying your money and doing it in an abundant, healthy way. But goodbye from me. And bye from me. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Accelerate Your Wealth. For further help or to connect with Rebecca directly, please head over to the website www.rebeccarobertson.co.uk where you can find further information on our planner, book and how to further maximise your wealth. For any regulated advice, please do head over to www.evolutionfinancialplanning.co.uk.